as a willingness. Yeah. 
we sort of need to understand what that is so that we don't give that way. Now the word grudge is used only a few times in the Bible. It's used only once in the Old Testament that I could find. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. It says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. Now, at its root, that Hebrew word means anger. The passage could very well read, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any anger against the children of your people. But, but the Hebrew word actually goes deeper than just mere anger. It, it's more like cherishing anger, nourishing anger, or maintaining anger towards someone. Isn't that what we do when we hold a grudge? Aren't we sort of nourishing or, or, or nursing this feeling of ill will or resentment towards someone when we hold a grudge? You know, someone once said, nursing a grudge never made it well again. And that's so true. But, but what about this New Testament word? What about this Greek word, grudge or grudgingly? Well, in verse 5, it's, it uses the word grudging in the New King James Version. Grudgingly in, in verse 7. It means grief or heaviness, and is often translated as sorrow or sorrowful, or even using the word reluctant. And this is actually a different word, but a difficult word to translate into English. And I know that because I can look across the various translations and see all the different words that the translators use. Again, in verse 5 in the New King James, grudging obligation. That's similar to what the NIV says. You have that. If we go back to the original King James Version there in verse 5, it says, not as covetousness. Not as covetousness. That's similar to what's in the New American Standard. Again, the English Standard Version that I read from earlier uses the word exaction. Not as an exaction. That is a real common word too. The footnote in my Bible says for that that the word exaction means greed or a gift expecting something in return. So if we consider, if we kind of put all this together, it has to do with the idea of greed or covetousness or a sort of sorrow or grief or reluctance or even anger about having to part with our money. If we, if we put all that together, then I think we have a pretty good understanding of what this, this meaning is. And of course, that's how we're not to give. And in contrast to that, Paul tells us how we are to give here in verse 7. As a person purposes in his heart and cheerfully we get some additional details in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. We see when we're to give, the first day of the week. And every week has a first day. Why don't we take up a collection on Wednesday night? Maybe that would be more convenient for some people. Well, because there's no New Testament authority to do that. We don't see a command, we don't see an example of them doing that. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do what? Do all in the name of the Lord. Not do some in the name of the Lord. Not do most in the name of the Lord. 
Not do it in the name of the Lord when it's convenient. Do all in the name of the Lord. And to do something in someone's name is to do it with or by their authority. How do we do something in the name of the Lord? How do we do something by His authority if you know, He has not authorized it? We see the who. Paul writing to the church there at Corinth said, let each one of you, every one of them, the members of that congregation was to give. And we see how much, in a sense, as each one prospers, the NIV says, in keeping with your income. This goes back to several of Paul's statements, like according to their ability in chapter 8 and verse 3, and according to what one has and not according to what one does not have in chapter 8 verse 12. We often hear, especially in the denominational world, of Old Testament terms brought into New Testament worship, words like tithe and offering. Uh, I grew up in the Baptist church myself, and I was always taught that a tithe was 10%. In fact, our English word tithe comes from the Old English word for tent. And it's also the same meaning as the Hebrew. Tent. 10%. And, and that an offering was what you gave over and above that 10%. And in the Old Testament, there were many different kinds of tithes. There was tithes of land. There were tithes of herds and flocks. There were tithes of grain, and so forth. In fact, if you add up all the required tithes, one could assume that they gave much more than a straight 10%. And the point I'm trying to make here is that in the New Testament, there is no tithe requirement. It is a collection or a contribution. Those are New Testament words. And the amount is as one purposes and as one Prospers. Now, having said that, of course, God knows our hearts and God knows our financial situation. Probably better than we do. He does know better than we do. We can spend a whole class just on those two ideas. And I'm going to keep going on. As one purposes, as one prospers. Paul does include in verse 6 here, chapter 9, this universal principle of sowing and reaping. We've heard it many times before. It's called a universal principle because it is true everywhere in the physical realm. And it's just as true in the spiritual realm. Paul reminded the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And, and we know this intuitively, but it's also been proven time and again by scientific experiment that this is true in the physical world. And it doesn't matter where you go in this world, you cannot grow cabbage from lead shot, is how the saying goes. doesn't matter how well you plant that lead shot. doesn't matter how well you nourish it and care for it doesn't matter what your motives or your intentions are, you cannot get cabbage from a lead shot. 
and you plant it in the ground. And it's just as true in the spiritual realm. Paul goes on to say in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, For he who sows to his flesh uh, will also of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Paul also points out to the Corinthians here in verse 8 that God is able. We see that phrase five or six times in the New Testament. More if we include a slight variation, who is able, like the familiar passage of Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. It says, now to him who is able. Of course, it's referencing God. But here, verse 8, Paul points out that God is able to do what? He is able to make all grace abound toward them so that they may have abundance for every good work. Now, is that over and above what they want? Or over and above what they need? That's abundance. We talked about grace being an unearned unmerited favor. And we typically talk about the grace of God that saves us eternally. But in chapters 8 and 9 right here, Paul talks about their grace. The grace of the Macedonians, the grace of the Corinthians. Grace extended to the needy saints in Jerusalem. They hadn't done anything to deserve this. But they were in need. Speaking of their grace in the form of this collection, this much-needed money. And, and Paul is saying in, in, in verse 8, and I'm paraphrasing here a little, God is able to extend grace to you. This, this kind of undeserved favor that will cause you to have abundance. Abundance that allows you to perform every good work. And so then as we walk in, in righteousness and wisdom, Verse 10 says God will provide the resources we need, and God gives the increase. If that sounds familiar to you, Paul used the same words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, where Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, and what? God gave the increase. Thank you. Uh, we, we talked about this some in our classes on personal evangelism, back in the back how we often get discouraged because we plant and we plant and we plant and we never see any increase. Well, I shouldn't say we never see any increase. We, we, it seems like maybe we rarely see an increase. But that's not our responsibility, is it? God gives the increase and He gives the increase in His time and in His way. Our responsibility is simply to do what? Plant. Sow the seed. And said, if you don't get the seed out of the barn and spread it on the field, there's not going to be a harvest. So true. And like we mentioned in last week's lesson, what comes from the cycle of giving that we're talking about here in chapters 8 and 9. I don't know if you can see the middle portion there, the text, but... People's needs are met, and God is glorified. And I would add one more to this. Thanksgiving abounds toward God. When we give out of our abundance, these things happen.
chapter 9 with these words. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gifts. That's the New King James Version. English Standard Version that I read from earlier uses the word inexpressible here. And you may have noticed that Paul spends a lot of time talking about grace. Well, this, this indescribable gift is the grace of God. And, and Paul is saying that, that human language is wholly inadequate to give full expression to this infinite grace. One commentator wrote, there's nothing in the human experience by which to compare absolute goodness and graciousness. Hence, there's no word for it. The best word by which to symbolize infinite grace would be Jesus. Jesus. The same commentator went on to say, the extent to which we are willing to let the Spirit of Christ control us and live in us will be the extent to which we can comprehend the incomprehensible grace of God. And you know, while we may not be able to find the words to express the inexpressible grace of God, that should keep us from expressing our gratitude to God. Again, not just with our money, but our time and our abilities. The other resources that He's blessed us with, our time, our treasure, our talents. And, and finally, I'm going to close my summary of chapter 9 by saying this. I'd be kind of negligent, I think, in this study if I didn't say something about the pattern of giving in the New Testament. Now, we don't have time for a detailed study of that this morning, but I can summarize the pattern. The pattern that I'm talking about with these words. Any money that was collected for a need always went directly to where the need was. So just keep that in mind for a minute. You could spend days, weeks, even months studying every single passage in the New Testament dealing with the collection of funds or the distribution of funds and you'll find in every case that God never arranged for a middleman or a middle organization. And that would include any kind of institutional board or sponsoring church arrangement between contributing churches and the work to be done. Does that make sense? God never provided for any kind of a middleman or middle organization. It is really unfortunate that, that so many who called themselves Churches of Christ back in the 50s and 60s, I know some of you will remember this, split over what we now call institutionalism. In 1954, a widely circulated publication among the Brethren, the Gospel Advocate, actually called for a quarantine against any church or any preacher that preached against institutionalism. Can you imagine that? Quarantine. 
by institutionalism, I'm referring to the church support of any activity that involved the use of an institutional board or sponsoring church arrangement. And this initially included support for orphans' homes and, and later came to include support for academic institutions and missionary work. Missionary work. So, and uh, many churches acted very aggressively on this call for a quarantine as if those that were against institutionalism, antis, they were called, as if those that were against institutionalism were, were some kind of plague that needed to be eradicated from the churches of Christ. The result of that was that churches and friendships and even families were divided. Gospel meetings were canceled. Preachers were fired. And in some cases where, where preachers and their families were living in church-owned homes, they were tossed out onto the street. In the words of Bill Hall, whom many of you know, who, who lived through those times and often talks about it today, he said, Christians were not acting like Christians. And I don't know the year or the author, but... Back in those days, someone from Lipscomb University wrote a tract called Where There Is No Pattern. The idea was, where there is no pattern, we're free to do as we choose. Now, that's nothing new. A lot of people believe and teach that, but it was, it was kind of new to Churches of Christ, and they were falling back on this idea to support institutionalism. So where there is no pattern, then any way we go about accomplishing something is just fine. Well, about that, I would say, aren't we being just a little bit presumptuous when we say that? I mean, the Old Testament is just riddled with examples of people assuming or presuming to know what God wanted. And then we're punished for it. King David prayed in Psalm 19 and verse 13. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Moses set forth a specific law over in Numbers chapter 15 and verse 30. That any person, whether they were native born or even a stranger among them. That brought reproach upon the Lord by doing something presumptuously, that person was to be cut off from the people. We should always remember that the silence of God is, does not give us permission to do anything. David Bunting once wrote in a sermon, and I wrote this down, respect for the king includes respect for the king's silence. Another preacher once wrote of the thundering silence of God. In other words, when it comes to God's word, the silence of God should thunder in our ears. The silence of God must be respected. I mean, red flags and warning sirens should go off in our minds anytime we hear someone say, but the Bible doesn't say we can't. Fill in the blank. Or where there is no pattern, 
where there is no pattern? The Bible, God's word, is one giant pattern for us to live by. It is a blueprint for success from our creator, from the grand architect, if you will. And we're not at liberty to take that blueprint and find an empty space in there somewhere and just start drawing our own lines. To do that would be presumptuous about what the grand architect wants. David spoke on Wednesday night about patterns and how our God is a God of details and how the details matter. So I'm actually glad to see that we're, that we're going to have another men's study this spring, sometime in April, I think. It's going to be a Zoom Bible study. It's going to be a continuation of last fall's class on authority. And as we already pointed out from Colossians 3.17, everything we do is to be done in the name of the Lord. And we said to do something in the, in the name of someone is to do it by their authority. So we need to understand what authority is. We need to understand the differences between general authority and specific authority. We need to understand the differences and, and the value of implications and inferences. We need to understand the differences between things that aid us in accomplishing what God has told us to do and things that add to what God has told us or God has he's not told us to do in scripture. Aids and additions we call them. And aid is okay and addition is not. But every generation must have a good understanding of authority. Someone once said we're always we're always only one generation away from apostasy. And we can see historically that this Falling away from the pattern so often happens because of either a disregard for or a lack of understanding about authority. So institutional churches today will, will often appeal to the need for greater organization as a more efficient way of doing things. You know, it's more efficient to appoint or elect, perhaps, a board or a committee consisting of people dedicated to overseeing some worthwhile endeavor. And, and while I would agree with that, we don't see any example in Scripture where a, a committee or a board was ever formed as an intermediary organization between one church or many churches and the work that needed to be done. Bill Hall also said, the need is not for greater organization. The need is for greater dedication and greater sacrifice. And so if you don't get anything else from this part of the lesson, I want you to remember this, I want you to fall back on this as, an, as a statement anchor statement, we sometimes call them. Money from the church's treasury that's used for a specific need always goes directly to where the need is. Just remember that. Does it pass that test? 
if the money is sent to some intermediate organization, an organization that has agreed to collect the funds for some purpose and, and then manage and, and redistribute those funds as they see fit, then that is institutionalism. And no matter how efficient we might think that such an organizational structure would be, we see no command, we see no example of such in Scripture. In fact, as we go throughout Acts and throughout Paul's letters, we see just the opposite. In this one example of collecting money to meet a specific need, the needy saints in Jerusalem, we see delegates or representatives from each of the congregations carrying their own collection directly to the source of the need, not some intermediate So I know it's been a, a pretty lengthy summary of chapter 9 to include a slight detour on institutionalism. But I'll pause there for any comments that anyone wants to make. We'll cover our points to ponder for chapter 9, and that may leave us time for just a couple of the questions and answers. And as always, we'll put the questions and the answers, we'll post those on the website later today or tomorrow. So, any, any comments about chapter chapters 8 or 9, about giving, the way we give, or even about the pattern of giving? Any questions or comments? None? Okay. Points to ponder from chapter 9. By practicing proper stewardship, we're going to give. But we can give, uh, we can be in the habit of giving and not practice good stewardship. We need to be good stewards. The Old Testament talks about tithes and offerings. The New Testament talks about collections and contributions. And our giving today, as one purposes and as one prospers. Reaping and sowing, a universal principle. Money from the church's treasury that's used for a specific need should always go directly to where the need is. And finally, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Any comments on our points to ponder there? And then, then we'll get into some questions. Okay, seeing none. Question number one from chapter nine. You can look there in verses one and two for the answer. Why did Paul consider it superfluous, that is, not necessary, to mention the collection to the Corinthians? I mean, he did mention it, but he said, I really don't need to mention it, but, I, but he did, right? But why did he consider it not necessary? Yeah, because he knew their willingness. He had boasted about that to the Macedonians. He talked about their zeal even in stirring up the majority. The zeal of the Corinthians had stirred up others to give. And then, well, it'd kind of be embarrassing if they showed up and the Corinthians didn't have anything collected. Right? All right. <clears throat> uh, number two. 
Why were the messengers being sent? Verses 3 through 5. Just in case, like John said. Just in case. Okay. Paul didn't want to show up and there'd be no collection. Because that would be, as he said, embarrassing. Right? So he's sending Titus with these other brethren to get things ready. <clears throat> okay, number three. What is the relationship between sowing and reaping in verse 6? We all know this one. Can't get cabbage from lead shot. <laughs> what you sow, you're going to reap. Exactly. You sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. Okay? Number four, what kind of giving pleases God? Cheerful giving. What kind of pleasing doesn't please God? Grudging. grudging. You all remember what grudge means now, right? Grudging. A grudging obligation. Or of necessity, it says here. All right, number five. What is God able to do? This is verse eight. Make all grace abound that we might have all sufficiency in all things. And then we can turn around and help others, right? What is the purpose of the abundance? Well, I just said that. Every good work. Number seven, why did Paul pray that God supply and multiply the seed sown by the Corinthians? Verse 10. I think I heard somebody say it. Increase fruits of their righteousness. And number eight, when one is enriched in everything... For what purpose is it? The New King James Version says, for all liberality. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, and that will produce thanksgiving to God. And that's kind of the English Standard rendition there. And we'll do the last one here, and we'll close the class. What four things did the administration of this service, the collection, We mentioned three things. Yep. Uh, so we're talking about the needs of the saints, many thanksgivings to God, glory to God for the giver's obedience, and prayer and longing for the givers in the hearts of the recipients. All right. Thank you for your kind attention.